Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. I'm Josh of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about us by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. You don't need us to tell you that we live in a media-saturated world. Aside from the fact that we can now access hundreds of TV channels with our cable subscriptions, we've witnessed an explosion of online media over the last decade. Streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime abound, there's the creation of the blogosphere, and there's even the birth of new media like podcasts, for which we're particularly grateful. Unlike in previous generations, though, we're all now producers of media, too, and this includes our students. We upload photos to Instagram and Snapchat, we post messages on Facebook, we tweet voraciously, and we create hundreds of thousands of YouTube videos every day. There's lots of voices out there telling us what to do, what to think, how to live, and we're telling others how to act and think and live too. And the more controversial the topic, say the Middle East for example, the more voices that weigh in. The sheer volume of information can make it hard to sift through, and it's even more difficult to help students process it all. How can we find reliable information? How do we know when information is accurate and when it's not? How can we make sure that we're getting the whole story? And perhaps most important for this century, how can we help our students become more conscientious of the media and the messages in their lives, both as consumers and producers? In this episode, we'll explore the importance of media literacy in the context of learning and thinking about the Middle East, and we'll highlight five activities that you can do with kids of different ages in the classroom. We're going to do all that in less time than you usually have for your lunch period. You ready? Well, then let's get started. This is Episode 3, Media Literacy in the Middle East. Media literacy is really just about asking who's telling the story, why they're telling that story, and whose voices are we not hearing in that story. And when we ask those three questions, we start the process of becoming media literate. Meet Hussein Rashid, an expert on the intersection of media and Islam. A born and raised New Yorker, Dr. Rashid is a contingent faculty member at Barnard College and Columbia University, where he teaches about media and religious literacy, especially as they pertain to the ways in which Islam and Muslims and Middle Easterners in general are portrayed in Western popular culture. He also defines media a little bit differently than we typically think of it. My work looks at Muslims in American popular culture. When we think of popular culture, we tend to think of television or movies or music. And that is popular culture, but so is architecture, so is literature. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that all of these things are media. Media is simply the ways in which we communicate to other people. And that can take a variety of different forms. So when we think about what media is, it is television, it is music, it is architecture, it is art. But generally when we talk about media in a popular sort of way, what we really mean is news media. Uh, there's a sense that the news is really the media that defines the ways in which we see the world. So I think when we talk about media and media literacy, what we're looking at is how is the world being relayed to us? How do we understand the world around us? And how is the media we're engaging with, for example, the news, trying to tell us a story? 
When I start talking about media literacy to my students, they get really nervous because they start thinking, you're going to ruin my favorite television show. And really what media literacy is, is literacy. The same types of questions we would ask of a book we're reading are the same types of questions we would ask of a television show. Who is telling that story? Why are they telling that story? And how would that story change if we took a different perspective on it, if we looked at it from the eyes of another character? One of my favorite examples is the story of the three little pigs. Everybody knows how big and bad the wolf is, but John Sheska, a children's author, has a book called The True Story of the Three Little Pigs. He's written with Lane Smith, and it's a story told from the wolf's perspective. So how does that then affect the ways in which we see the world or understand that story? Uh, perhaps from an adult's perspective, Wicked is the new example. What happens when the evil witch is not really the evil witch and the Wizard of Oz is not as virtuous as we've been led to believe? Telling familiar stories from different perspectives is actually our first media literacy exercise, and this is something you can do with students of almost any age. Start by having your kids pick their favorite story. It could be their favorite movie or book or something as simple as a fairy tale, like The Three Little Pigs. Have them identify the main characters, the characters' friends, the supporting characters, the antagonists, and the main problem of the story. Then have them imagine how the story might be told differently if one of the other characters told it. It could be the same story from the villain's perspective, or the same story from the best friend's perspective. It really doesn't matter. Ask the kids how the main problem and the main character look from this other point of view. And push them to think about what this additional perspective tells us. This is a great starter activity for teaching media literacy in any context, because it's something that the kids will probably understand pretty quickly. All of us see the world through different sets of eyes, and even the big bad wolf has a point of view. Of course, this doesn't mean that we have to agree with every perspective out there, but understanding that multiple perspectives do exist is the first step in becoming media literate. One of the main ways that media shapes our perceptions of the Middle East is through a process known as othering. That is, trying to identify ways that distinguish us and ourselves as a group of people from other groups of people. In the process of creating the quote-unquote other, we often fall back on familiar tropes, which has the effect of boosting our own sense of esteem and self-worth and separating ourselves from those who appear foreign to us. When we look at the ways in which we talk about people from the Middle East, in particular Arabs, and Jack Shaheen's work on this in Real Bad Arabs Looking at Films really lays this out uh, in a very broad uh, way, uh, giving us a survey of how this represents. The Arab is dirty, has no civilization, they live in the desert, they're violent, they ride horses with scimitars, they have poor gender relations, they have these harems, and they're always looking to take new wives. Uh, they're always wanting to abduct the blonde-haired American woman, right? Uh, and of course, the religion that they believe in is totally illogical. Who believes in this God and this prophet when everybody knows the true religion is my religion, which is not Islam, whatever that religion is? Media of any sort, whether it's news media, fictional media, nonfiction media, it comes with these tropes built in. It's a way that we as audience members, as consumers of this media, can quickly understand what's happening. These tropes become ways to really quickly signify uh, who the other is, and the other is most assuredly not us. These tropes about the Middle East and Arabs in particular, that they're dirty, 
lascivious, barbaric, dangerous. They're everywhere in Western movies and TV shows. Sometimes they're pretty explicit, such as the Libyan terrorists in Back to the Future, to use an example from 80s pop culture. Other times, though, they're less apparent, and they're hidden just beneath the surface so that we pick up on them without fully realizing that they're there. Want an example? Then it's time for our second classroom activity, doing a close reading of the Arabian Nights song from Disney's Aladdin. Since you work with kids and maybe have kids of your own, there's a good chance you've seen this movie a zillion times. Robin Williams is pretty funny, and the melodies of the songs are catchy. But if you listen closely to the lyrics of the first song in particular, uh, the song that opens the movie and sets the tone and feel for everything else that's to come, you hear all those tropes about Arabs in the Middle East that Dr. Rashid just mentioned. The land, as the singer calls it, is far away, or in other words, exotic. He also drops the word barbaric in the opening stanza, albeit cleverly guised as a reference to the climate of the region itself. There's that element of magic, too. Just hop a carpet and fly. The lasciviousness is arguably in there, too. Arabian Nights, the singer tells us, are usually hotter than hot in a lot of good ways. And in case he wasn't being clear enough, he tells us that this is a place where danger lurks, a place where the naive can fall and fall hard out there on the dunes. Now, we're not telling you not to watch Aladdin ever again. Thinking that would miss the larger point we're trying to make about media literacy. And that brings us back to an idea that Dr. Rashid brought up earlier. The point of media literacy isn't to ruin your favorite movies and TV shows. In fact, media literacy isn't really about being critical of media when you get right down to it. Instead, it's more about thinking critically about media. One of the goals of a good humanities education is this thing we call critical thinking. And critical thinking is the ability to make informed decisions in your life. But I don't think you can really make informed decisions or make intentional decisions with a lack of information. And it's fine that you don't know information, but what media literacy does is it allows you to say, what don't I know? What do I need to know more about? How do I make sure that I'm making the best informed decision that I possibly can for whatever it is I want to do? And so media literacy, like literacy more broadly, is about getting individuals to engage with stories that they're being told, understanding where those stories are coming from, and why those stories might be told in the way they're being told. So now that we have a handle on what media can be and what media literacy is, let's apply that kind of thinking to a case study drawn from recent news from the Middle East, the conflict between Saudi Arabia and its smaller neighbor, Yemen. One of the things that I think keeps coming up in my teaching or in my public talks is that I heard this story on the news. And that news could be MSNBC, that news could be Fox News, it could be CNN. But there is a sense that that one story that they heard is a defining element of what the broader story that they're interested in is all about. And so right now, when we think about the Middle East, we think about a region embroiled in conflict, in violence. We hear about the Saudi government bombing the people of Yemen as an example. And the story we might hear there is that there are terrorists in Yemen who are going to overthrow the Saudi monarchy. That may be what the Saudis believe. But when we hear that the Saudis per capita are some of the richest people in the world, and they have the ability to buy all these weapons, and the Yemenis have subsistence living, what threat do the Yemenis have to the Saudis? 
And so what happens is the story becomes much more complicated. What this is, is Goliath pummeling David is what the story is. If we say, how do the Yemenis view this situation? But when we just watch the media and we hear this one story, it's the Saudis are right. And so we need to really think about what is it that we're being told and how, what impact does that have on other people? And what does that mean for us as individuals as well? Whether you're inclined to interpret this story as one of Saudi self-defense or Saudi aggression is entirely up to you and what you make of all the information available. But it's also up to you to recognize that every story can be told from multiple perspectives. And it's your obligation as a media literate person to think about what stories aren't being told and to go out and find more perspectives. Being media literate also allows you to sift through those competing perspectives so that you can make more informed decisions about which perspective, or as is often the case, combination of perspectives you find most convincing and most compelling. Okay, you know that every story can be viewed from multiple perspectives. How do you actually go about finding those perspectives and collecting information in a media-saturated environment such as ours? How do you know if a story is accurate? And how can you better evaluate the information and perspectives within it? Dr. Rashid had a few words to say about this, too. I uh, like to use Twitter a lot. It's how I catch up on my news and see what's happening in the world. And I'm somebody who likes to double check my sources. And when uh, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, there was a picture that was shared on Twitter uh, of a shark swimming in the flooded highways of Houston. And I shared that image without even thinking. And 30 seconds later, sure enough, I got tweets back that said, that image is fake and Photoshop. And yes, okay, I fell for it. Uh, I think it shows two things. One is that it doesn't matter if you consider yourself media literate, you always need to check and verify. Uh, look, we're human, we make mistakes. Uh, I think the other thing that it shows is that some things are too good not to believe. And those are the ones we have to be most careful of because when it's too good not to be believed, you know, it's that expression, when it's too good to be true, go back and double check. And when I talk to my students about how do you engage with sources online, you know, I tell them, look for things that have been verified. I said, you know, when we look at academic presses or we look at academic journals, this is what we call peer review. Somebody's been through this, somebody's checked it. Is, is the information accurate? Is it true? Or can we say that, okay, people may disagree about what this is, but the basic premise is right. When you're online, you may see something that, how do I know this is true? Uh, it seems like it's perfect for what I need. There's a shark on the highways in, of flooded Houston. You know, the thing that I offer them is see if you can find two other independent sources that confirm this. In other words, not two other sources that report the story and link back to your first article or that link to each other in some capacity, but to say, okay, if this is being reported on site X, do site Y and Z also report it without linking back to each other? If the answer is yes, the chances of it being a true story are probably pretty good in this day and age. brings us to our third classroom activity for teaching media literacy, how to corroborate information and stories. This activity is pretty straightforward. Divide your students into small groups and have them use a search engine to find a news media story online that's related to the Middle East, but that's entirely new to everyone in the group. That latter point is key, 
because it's really important that the article be about an issue that kids have never encountered before, whether it's about Middle Eastern society or economics or current events. Have them annotate the story, identifying the who's and what's and where's and when's and why's, etc. And have them learn more about the reporter and the organization that published the story too. Then have students search the web for two related stories published by different news outlets and have them go through the same annotation process for each. How do the details in each of the three stories compare? Which details were the same in each and which details were different? Did the latter two stories independently corroborate the information in the first story? And how much of the info in the first story did they corroborate? All of it? Most of it? Only a tiny little bit? Don't be surprised if some groups report back to the class that they could not corroborate the original story or that they could corroborate only part of it. That'll be a good thing and the best possible outcome for this activity because it will have meant that they've recognized that information can be presented in different amounts and in different ways by different people and all for different purposes. And that, in a nutshell, is media literacy. We also need to talk about language and the words we use to describe things. Words can be really tricky, even when we don't intentionally mean them to be, because a single word can convey a lot of meaning in both subtle and not so subtle ways. Take, for example, the phrase radical Islamic terrorism, a phrase that got a lot of buzz during the last election cycle. The phrase and its meaning seem pretty straightforward enough, right? So why do some people take issue with it? Language is an important way to think about how stories are told as well. When we think about the way language is used, what happens is that when we attach a label to something, what we're trying to do is convey meaning. Is that meaning useful? Is it important? What does it convey? So when we talk about radical Islamic terrorism, what we're trying to do is say that there's something about the terrorism that is inherently Islamic and that there is something radical about it. Now. Violence is a radical act, by definition. Is there anything Islamic about violence? I would argue no. Violence has existed before the advent of Islam. It has been committed by people who are not Muslim. And so when we use the language of radical Islamic terrorism, what we're trying to do is saying that there's violence that's being done. It is being done by this religion because of this religion and no other factors and that it can somehow happen because they become radicalized and anybody can become radicalized at any point. And it doesn't really allow us to say, okay, why would somebody want to take their own life and take other people with them? So I think that when we think about language, we have to be very clear what it is we're trying to get at, who it is we're trying to describe, and who it is that are victims of these crimes. That's one perspective. What might others be? And how would you go about finding them? This could make for a fruitful classroom discussion. But for our fourth media literacy activity, we'd like to propose something else. Another exercise that draws attention to the words we use in writing, thinking, and talking about the Middle East. This one we can call the headline game. And you'll be using headlines from prose-based news stories about the refugee crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean. The point is to draw attention to the words people use to describe the millions of people in the region who've been displaced because of war and violence. You can do this activity in one of two ways. The first option would be to have students go on a web quest of sorts to find headlines about the crisis from various online news sites. What words are used to describe the people, both individually and collectively? 
Alternatively, you could give students a list of words that you know others have used to describe refugees and have them go out and find headlines or quotes from different people that contain those words. Both approaches have their merits and their potential pitfalls. If you go the latter route, have them look for words like refugee, migrant, swarm, horde, invasion, waves, overrun, siege, internally displaced person or IDP, illegal, asylum, clandestine. Have students think about what each of these words conveys and whether they think the author of a particular quote or headline was trying to convey that meaning when they used it. Is the connotation of the word positive or negative or maybe neither? Which terms are technical terms, such as migrant, a person who voluntarily moves from one place to another, and refugee, a person who moves from one country to another while under duress? We'll be talking a lot about refugees, migrants, IDPs, and teaching about the crisis in the Eastern Mediterranean in a future episode. But for right now, the main point is to convey to your students that the words we use really do matter in shaping how we perceive the world. Finally, before we wrap up, we need to talk about the term media bias, which you hear a lot in political rhetoric these days. The idea behind this phrase, at least as I've understood it being used, is that mainstream media intentionally favors some viewpoints over others, namely liberal viewpoints over conservative ones. Maybe this is the case, and maybe it isn't. That can be for you to decide with your newfound media literacy skills. Regardless, this phrase media bias will very likely come up in any class discussion you have about the media, at least with older students. Because of this, it's important that your students understand the difference between bias and perspective. When we think about media, we hear the term media bias, and I think it's important to distinguish between bias and perspective. Perspective is where do I understand a particular issue from? So. I'm a guy who was born and raised in New York, and my perspective is informed by that. I see the world through how many people live together, how different are they, how do they get along, what would we do without public transportation. So my perspective on the world is informed by those experiences that I have growing up and living in New York. When your perspective becomes so narrow that you can't imagine anybody else's way of seeing the world, I think that's when we start getting into bias. And bias has this really negative connotation, and I think rightfully so. It is that I don't want to know, or I'm not interested in knowing, or what I do know about you tells me that you're wrong. I think that that's really the distinction between perspective and bias I would like to get into. So when we talk about a media bias, we're not looking so much at a media bias as we are looking at a media perspective. And that comes out of most major news organizations tend to be in densely populated urban centers uh, with large, diverse populations. Um, and I think that it becomes hard to tell other stories because that perspective just doesn't exist in the newsrooms. And again, it's not necessarily bias, it's a question of lack of perspective. So what media literacy does is it says, this is a story, it's serving a purpose, what other stories are out there for us? This is the last piece of the media literacy puzzle then, the perspective that we as consumers of media bring to the table when we read or hear or see a story. It's also the perspective we have as producers of media, of tweets, snaps, vines, YouTube videos, blogs, and even podcasts like this one. Who are we as storytellers and as readers of stories? And what perspectives, and maybe even biases, do we have? 
what other perspectives differ from the ones that we create and through which we interpret information. Our final classroom activity gets students to think about these questions and kind of sums up everything we've been talking about for the last few minutes. In this activity, you'll ask your students to produce a story related to the Middle East. It could be a story as complex as a newspaper-style article that they write, or something seemingly simple and innocuous, like a Facebook post. Neither the issue nor the medium themselves should be the primary focus. Rather, students should be paying attention to the construction of the message and how they want their audience to receive it. What words and images are they going to use? And most importantly, what perspective will they be taking? By putting your kids in the driver's seat, you'll be acknowledging that they're creators of media too, and you'll be challenging them to think carefully about what messages they're communicating to others and how they're communicating them. The hope is that by synthesizing all they've learned about media in this way, they'll become more thoughtful producers and consumers of messages related to the Middle East. Thanks for joining us, and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about today's episode, our sponsors, and strategies for teaching media literacy as it relates to the Middle East, visit www.primarysource.org podcasts.